use what you've got, whether it's equipment or whatever you are facing. So if you're facing a day that there's drizzle or mist, work with that. Work on your composition, work with what is in front of you. And, and that's what I do. I, you know, work with the atmospheric conditions that I find. And, and that's, that's basically how I photograph. I'm also a spot a very strong believer in This photography podcast is brought to you by Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. Here is your today's host, W. Scott Olsen, with another fascinating conversation. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to another podcast from Frames Magazine. My name is Scott Olson, and today, folks, today we are taking a deep dive into landscape photography with one of the real talents, one of the real masters. And, and we're going back to, to beautiful Italy for this conversation. We're talking with Adriana Beniti-Longini. Adriana, how are you doing today? I'm fine, thanks, Scott. I'm just trying to deal with the last... Uh Last few weeks of winter, I think it's been very long, and uh, it's been not such a pleasant winter because of climate change. Obviously, that's a factor that influences not only us in Italy, in the northern in the northern part of Italy where we have the, the world famous Dolomites, the Alps, but I guess all over the world. Um, so. We are looking forward to spring. Um, and let's see what happens. Let's let's wait and see. Yes. It, it has been a challenging winter for all of us. That much is true. Not only mm. with the weather and climate change, put COVID on top of it. And, and it has been uh, an extraordinary season to move through. I'm glad spring's coming for a thousand reasons. Adriana, you you have such a talent for landscape photography. And before we get into some of the images, before we get into that actual body of work, one of the things I found fascinating is just your entire history, where you were born, where you grew up. So let's begin with the beginnings, more or less. Tell, bring everybody up to speed on how you got to be where you are today. Okay, I um, was born in Africa, in in Tanzania or Tanzania, depending how um, it's pronounced, in a small town uh, between uh, the mountain of Kilimanjaro, which obviously is world famous, and a smaller sister mountain called Mount Meru. And my parents, uh, starting with my father, left Italy after World War II with his parents. And uh, obviously Italy had suffered greatly due to both world wars and particularly the region where I'm living in at the moment, which is, just to put it into perspective, I am an hour and a half north of Venice and about two and a half to three hours south of Innsbruck. So I'm, pro I'm in the Dolomite area, uh, the pre-Dolomite, to put it actually more accurate. Beautiful, um, beautiful area. So uh, my father left, um, left Italy after the war with his parents and uh, moved to Africa like many Italians did after the war, you know, that they, they left to seek, uh, I think, the, the classic fortune 
that, uh, that a lot of immigrants happened to do after the war. And my grandfather, and, and obviously my father was young, they chose Tanzania, which was extremely difficult for Italian people to settle in because it was first a German colony and then it became a British colony. It was very difficult, but my grandfather being the type of character he was, he managed to settle in and um, developed a lovely coffee farm, a coffee plantation. And I grew up in that, in that, um, in that world of uh, British colonialism. Obviously, I went to British-based schools and had a beautiful childhood, absolutely fabulous childhood. Were, were, you, were you an outdoors kid when, when you were small? Were you always playing outside? Yes. In actual fact, I was a tomboy. Um, I, I didn't really play with the classic Barbie doll and things like that. I actually played more with the dinky toys, the little toy cars, and and I did a lot of outdoor stuff, climbing trees. And, <laughs> you know, as I grew up, we were lucky enough to to live and visit the, the greatest parks in the world. The, uh, if people know about the National Park, Serengeti, Ngorongoro Crater, the world-famous parks, which my dad and his father uh, cut the roads, the dirt roads through the parks. So I grew up in that in that atmosphere, uh, which I actually think about often. As mm-hmm. one gets older, I suppose you remember those things about your childhood. Then you moved off to another beautiful part of the world. Uh, yes, in the 70s, unfortunately, uh, like a lot of African countries, there was a lot of political turmoil and my parents were very worried about the education of their children. And unfortunately, in those years, in the 70s, Tanzania, East Africa in general, Kenya and Uganda went through a lot of problems in politics and the education system collapsed and so my father had to think about us. And uh, the next best would be or to come back to Italy, but because we were already all English speaking with very, a minimal Italian, I'm talking about myself and my, my brothers and my sister, uh, South Africa was the, the destination for a lot of families that had to leave Tanzania and Kenya and particularly Uganda where it was relatively developed. And obviously, uh, South Africa had its problems, you know, with apartheid and uh, that. But when I left Tanzania, I was 14 years old, and we left lock, stock and barrel, abandoned Tanzania and went to live in South Africa, which is a magnificent country. I, I feel South African. I'm African-born, so obviously... My sentiments for Africa are very strong, but um, South Africa, being a teenager almost when I left, well, I was a teenager when I left Tanzania to go to South Africa, I grew up, you know, the adult years, the first adult years in, in South Africa, which I absolutely love. It's, it's what I call my country. Although I'm Italian, I don't have links, strong links, to Italy other than living here. My links are African, and I think I draw a lot of inspiration in what I, I, how I lived in South Africa in my photography. Very cool. And, and, and that, that, le- that leads me to the next question. When did the first camera come along? When, when did you start turning a lens toward landscape? 
Okay, this is, it's, you know, I have a huge gap between, uh, you know, when from when I actually held a camera in my hands to when I actually started photographing. My grandfather bought me a camera when I was 11 years old. And it was a Kodak. Uh, I, I'm not sure if it was a brownie. I can't remember. But it was a Kodak. And I, I took photos. I was at boarding school. I went to boarding school for a couple of years. And my boarding school was actually situated on the slopes of Mount Kilimanjaro. And I dedicated, the photographs that I took were more portraits of, of uh, fellow boarders, fellow companions at school, animals, and our various safaris and outings that we did. And, and it wasn't black and white, predominantly in black and white, because I think that's what I could afford. I couldn't really afford color film at, at that stage. And then... Um, School took its course and we left for South Africa. Once I finished school in South Africa, which is equivalent to, I think, American graduation, South Africa, it would be matric. It, it's called matric. So after matric, I didn't take a gap year. I never wanted to take a gap year. I wanted to study, finish studying, and then venture out into the world. So from finishing school and graduating, I went straight away to study fine arts. And I studied fine arts for three years and I took up photography as one of the subjects that I had to choose to complement the, the major subjects that I had to study. Understandably, every country has got their different system of, of university or college or whatever, you know. So I had to choose a couple of major subjects, which was history of art, anatomy, and graphic art, which is completely different to graphic design. So I went for the graphic art, which involves etchings and, and, and drawing and uh, painting and sculpture. But then we were required to take a few subjects in, in a minor way. And one of those subjects was photography. And that's, I think, when the love of, of photography, particularly in those days in the dark room, you know, developing black and white, I think that's when it took off. And I started to see what I could do, you know. And, and were, were you doing early landscape work there or more still portraits of friends? No, uh, we did. But we were encouraged to do self-portraits, especially in the black and white medium. But I did a lot of detail work and a lot of uh, street photography, which is something that I don't enjoy today. But I, I think we were guided by our professors, our lecturers, and, and what was sort of the limitations of students not being able to really work with color with, in the color medium because of the cost. And I mean, I remember, I mean, today it's digital, so you can, we all know you can take 5,000 photographs and then throw away 4,000 maybe, <laughs> or I'd say 100 photographs and throw away 80. Yep. In those yep. days, you would save up every cent and buy a 12 exposure roll of film. And you'd think twice about pressing the button, you know, which which I think is a good grounding anyway for for learning uh, for learning photography. You actually have to think about what you took. So so when did the landscape bug start to come come forward? I didn't do photography for many years because you know, being an artistic person, and I think people that will listen to the podcast and that have done some sort of 
training or some sort of experience in the art world, I think would, you know, you develop. And I left photography once I left um, and I graduated from, from studying fine arts. I went into advertising because, you know, jobs were very limited. My dream was to actually work in an art gallery. And that wasn't possible because there just weren't jobs available. And, and the few jobs in the big cities in South Africa being Durban, which is at the coast, and then Johannesburg, where I actually lived until I came back to Italy. Jobs in the art world, in the fine art world, not in the commercial art world, were very scarce. So I had to think what I wanted to do. And I was still single then. You know, I, was just, I just finished studying. So I got work in an advertising company, but specializing in, in, in neon, designing neon for whatever shopping centers, shopping malls. In South Africa, there was a tendency to go the Las Vegas way and do these resorts <laughs> with all, you know, neon flashing all over. So I went into that, into that world to start off with when I finished studying. And it was a good, it was a really good period in my life. I loved it. But th there's a bit of there's a bit of distance between neon flashing Las Vegas style and beautiful soft portraits of landscapes. There is a huge difference, but you know that's I think it's part of the training that prepares you for what you do in life. That's the way I think. Each step that a person does, and I'm talking about in the, in the design world. In, in the art world, in the photography world, I think each step that you do or each uh, journey that you take, everything rubs off onto the next step. So being in the in the design world prepares you for whatever your life holds next. And strangely enough, I, I got married um, while I was working in, in, in advertising and took a break to have children, and I, I had... Uh, twin boys, really wonderful children, but that that put a stop to whatever whatever design, art, or photographic things that I was doing. Um, you know, it's, it wasn't easy to to um, to have two two children at the same time. It, <laughs> it took a lot out on yeah. And then uh, by accident, when when they started growing up and they went went to kindergarten and then started primary school, you know, I had a, a free time. And um, strangely enough, I, I developed our home and we built our own home. And one of the boys' uh, friends' mothers, she came up to, she came to pick up the boys from an afternoon of a play day together. And she asked me who had decorated my house. And I said, well, I did it. And she said to me, well, why don't you help me? with my house, and I said, yeah, sure, why not? And uh, so I did 15 years. After that, I did 15 years of interior design, <laughs> which, which I drew from my experiences in studying the formal arts, right. studying the classic arts. You know, your, your influences are the great masters in landscape, the great masters in portrait painting and that. So I had that as a background. And I think that prepared me for, for the capacity to do many different things. I believe that. It might, it might not be the same for somebody else. But for me, definitely the influence of 
of the, the great masters in the world of in various art forms has definitely left an influence, which is perhaps why I do what I do now. And obviously living in Italy, coming back to live in Italy, um, where well, I'm jumping the gun now because I was fortunate enough to come to Italy to see where I came from when I was a student. And um, my grandfather by that time had left Africa and had come back to live in Italy and he introduced me to Venice. And in Venice, it's an, an entire museum of the very best in, in painting and sculpture and architecture. And I fell in love with Venice. So, Adriana, did, were you not doing any any real photography or landscape work until you moved back to Italy? Yeah, I no, no I, I never. I, I used the camera to record moments throughout the period, but the, the real landscape photography started when I came back to live in Italy 18 years ago. And were, were you just walking along on a Tuesday afternoon and you said, you know, that's a pretty mountain, where's my camera? Or, I mean, what, what calls to you about landscape photography? I, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult and a tricky question to answer, Scott, because where I live and the proximity to the Dolomites, uh, that woke something up inside of me. And when I saw the Dolomites for the very first time, I had been, and I was still living in Italy, uh, in South Africa, sorry, when I saw the Dolomites for the very first time. And that was the beginning. And I didn't have an important camera then. I had uh, a compact camera. I had, unfortunately, all my equipment stolen in South Africa, and I never replaced it. I, I really had aluminium or aluminium, as you say, in America, case full of lenses and, and bodies, and that was stolen they were stolen out of my car. And then, you know, I, d I didn't really think of replacing things because I was in the middle of bringing up children. And so when I got to Italy, I only had a compact. And I thought, no, no, let me go out and, and, and purchase a camera and start again. Because what was in front of my eyes, it had to be documented through what, how I saw the beauty of where I was living let, 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 let's, let's pause right there because, I mean, you're describing a kind of visceral or, or emotional attachment to a landscape. Other people are attracted to deserts or the Arctic or whatever. What is it about the Dolomites in, in particular or mountains that was waking something up in you? I've always enjoyed, um, if somebody asked me, and a lot of people have asked me the question, if you have to choose the mountains, countryside, or the sea, what would you choose? And I always say the mountains. And I think that love of mountains, also where we had our coffee farm, our coffee plantation in Tanzania was along a mountain ridge. And, I, and, and, and growing up in front of Kilimanjaro, and, um, and then in South Africa, the famous Drakensberg Mountains, which are spectacular, something always drew me to mountains. And then seeing the Dolomites for the very first time, uh, something, I, 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 it's difficult to explain, but something exploded. And I thought, this is where I have to be, and I have to document the beauty. And that's where it started, the serious landscape photography and the, and the atmos atmospheric changes and the seasons. In Africa, we don't have four seasons. We have summer and then perhaps the rainy season. Um, and, and, and sorry, here in Italy or in Europe, 
and I'm sure in the States and in Canada and, 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 and more the northern hemispheres, you have the four seasons. And when I, when I started to see how beautiful spring was here and how beautiful autumn was, especially where I live, that, that was just inspiration in itself. And that just spoke to me and I thought, that's it. This is what I have to do. And I have to document this. Let's take just a quick break. We hope very much that you are enjoying today's episode. The very fact that you are listening to this podcast suggests that photography means a lot to you. And if that's the case, you might want to have a look at Frames, quarterly printed photography magazine. We truly believe that excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit readframes.com to find out more about our publication. And now, back to today's conversation. Very, very cool. A couple of things I, I want to pick up on. You, you've used the term document a couple of times, and, and yet you've also said you, you want to document the beauty. And, and as you say that, I'm remembering one of the things you have on, on one of your um, web pages where you say you dream of, of photographing and then you go photograph the dream. So many, so many photographers, you know, if you say, what do you take pictures of? They don't come back with, a, oh, I'm taking pictures of 8th Street. They come back with a mood or an emotion, that kind of stuff. So what is landscape photography in your lens and eye? What, in, in, talk to me about this documenting beauty. You know, Scott, I, um, I just to give a, a brief uh, reasoning behind my type of photography. Um, and I've always said I don't follow fashions at all in photography. I'm, I'm not interested what's in, in vogue at the moment. And I'm, I'm very strong about that. I love beauty. And I think even though the Dolomites, for instance, are quite imposing, where I live in the pre-Dolomites, it's more smaller mountains and rolling hills. But once you get up to the proper Dolomites, it's just huge high mountains with rock and, 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 and jagged peaks. And what happens in those areas, there are, are a lot of atmospheric changes during the day. So you would have, in one moment of the day, you would have thermal inversion where you get a lot of mist and low-lying clouds and these enormous jagged peaks going, coming through the clouds. And that's what inspires me. And, and that's what I want to document, the changing of, 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 in one day, the changing of climate and of weather patterns, which makes the landscape magnificent, which is very different to photographing a place like Venice, for instance, or near a home. So I'm very influenced on atmospheric conditions in my work. I, I hope people get a real, uh, you know, a, go look at your web stuff immediately. If, if not, look at the stuff that's on the Frames Facebook group. And everybody, it, it's photo in location as one word, photoinlocation.com. Because I don't know, at one level, what I hear you describing is dramatic. You know, you talk about atmospheric changes and, and you know, and, and if, if I hadn't seen your work, I'd say, you know, are, are you the kind of, you know, thunderstorm and avalanche landscape photographer? And yet, your work's got a lot of fog, it's got a lot of mist, it's got a lot of really you know, evocative versus 
you know, symbol crashing kind of work. So how are you finding subjects and interest in, in all of this really beautiful, I mean, go back to, to, you know, to that term, beautiful atmospheric stuff. Do you go racing out the day when the, out the door when there's a fog alert or how, how do you go about knowing to go? Okay, um, I, I just uh, off a tangent slightly, I run a photographic group here in our local town and um, we, are, we are not a formal group, we're not a club or a, or a, you know, we're just a group of friends. I'm the only one that's professional in the group and the rest of, of they do it for hobbies in the weekend and that. So they all know me that I'm crazy, I'll go out the minute I see a storm, I'm out. I rather I, I rather stay uh, if it's sunny blue skies or not a cloud in the sky. I'll, I'll stay home and do chores. That's you know that's me. If if there's a thunderstorm or or you know that type of uh, fog and things like that, that's when I'm out because I'm looking for that particular atmosphere. So that's the way I tend to decide when I go out. And, and once you start to bring home the results, well, the, when I start to bring home the results that I'm looking for, and that I know in me once I've got a good shot. I know it. You know, you feel it. Uh, obviously, there's ways of improving the, the material that you bring home because all of us use Photoshop or all of us use Lightroom or whatever else there is. But I'm a firm believer, and, and this is what was uh, instilled in me when I studied was that you use what you've got, whether it's equipment or whatever you are facing. So if you're facing a day that there's drizzle or mist, work with that. Work on your composition, work with what is in front of you. And and that's what I do. I you know work with the atmospheric conditions that I find and, and that's that's basically how I photograph. I'm also, uh, Scott, a very strong believer in using the equipment that you have. I'm totally against this constant race for having the very latest of the latest. And I think that comes part of studying with professors or lecturers that made you do work with what you had in front of you. So that's what I, that's what I believe in. And I have good equipment. I have uh, decent equipment, but it's it's already aging the equipment I have. But I'm not using that as an excuse. There's no need for that to be an excuse not to bring home good work. And that's something I'm very I believe very strongly in. So when I go out there, uh, if the conditions aren't, how can I say, if I go out and the, and 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 there's a bit of rain, a bit of drizzle, use that to your advantage. And, and I think um, I think that pays off. In, in the way I work, it pays off. That influences a lot of my work. Another influence is uh, when I do, I do a lot of reading. I read at least once a day articles on photography. Whether it's my genre, landscape photography, or whatever is out there, I do believe in that. I think um, you never stop learning. I think uh, it's, it's very important and I have some students that I teach. I teach post-production, you know, and we go out in fields as well and do some work. And I say to them, you know, learn. Learn every day something new. 
and read articles. If you're not interested in portrait photography, have a look at it. There's always something that that you learn from that, you know. If, if I mean, I don't really photograph animals. I've, an animal's got to stand in front of me before I'll actually photograph it. I'm not an animal photographer. But the times that I've gone out on safari or I've been able to photograph deer in the mountain, it's because the animal's there. It's not me. But when I come home and I can bring home a good photograph, I did a fantastic photograph the last time I was in Africa, which was last year, of a leopard. I, I, I couldn't contain this excitement of having a leopard right in front of me and being able to photograph it. But it's not what I go out and photograph. And then once you bring home that type of photograph, you start reading about how it's done or watching YouTube videos that can, can help you explain certain things. So my message always is to try and learn and, and learn every day something or read something every day. I agree with you a thousand percent. It's sort of funny. You know, I don't have a studio. I don't work with studio lights. And yet every time I see one of those little videos come up that says, you know, place your key light this way and your backlight that I read those things you know, with, with complete interest, knowing I will never be there. But yeah, it, it's a complete, completely different part of photography. Adriana, I want to change to some of your, your images in particular now. And, and I am looking at the images that you have up at the Thermovich Gallery. Everybody, if, if you Google um, Adriana's name, this will come up right away. It's one of the early links. It, it is a magnificent representation of her work. Um, and, and there's a handful of images in here I want to talk about. And then I want to talk about some of your Venice pictures as well. But let, let's let's start with the, I, they're probably larches here, just, you know, your, your landing photograph, the big one right at the very beginning, a bunch of evergreens covered in hoarfrost. It, it's stunning and, and everybody, until you get a chance to look at it, it's a winter scene, it's snow covered, it's a pine forest. And that really kind of magic when uh, a fog has rolled through and it's about freezing, so everything's covered in hoarfrost. Uh, in the distance, there's some mist. You can see, you know, a, a distant ground, perhaps a lake in, in the distance, but a really, really magnificent. You know, one of those pictures that you think's in black and white until you look at it closely. No, this is actually in color. This is what the world looks like this day. So tell me, tell me the history. Of, of taking this shot, you know, just the boots in the snow, but also tell me what about this shot is appealing for you? I think, you know, Scott, it's difficult to put into words the emotion that I have when I'm confronted with a scene. As I said to you before, when I arrive at a location, I do study locations before I go out to them, or I've already been out to do some scouting and have a, a quick look at composition and that. That's part of the groundwork. No, I don't do that all the time. It just depends on the time that I have available. But I think when I go into scenes like that, you become part of the scene. I, I, it's, I'm standing behind the tripod, obviously. But your um, in Italian we say anima, which is your, your spirit, is within the scene, and I think that's that's the way I work. And in that particular photograph, you you have to feel, or I felt at that moment that I was there in that scene. So I was a tree, but I was a human with a tripod in the, in, instead of a tree. If you, I don't know if I'm I'm getting it's clear enough, but I think in my work and the way I like to to 
come to terms with what I'm photographing is that I've got to feel part of the scene. I can't feel, how can I say, disjointed. I don't think that's a correct word, but uh, I've, I'm almost in the scene, part of the landscape. I'm a tree. I'm not the photographer with a tripod. I don't know if that makes sense. Maybe yes, to, it landscape does. Photog yes, it does. to landscape photographer, uh, photographers, maybe maybe that's the way they think. If I'm photographing a waterfall, I feel that water. You feel it. Uh, it's just it's just a feeling, you know. And I think not only me. I mean, there's millions of photographers, landscape photographers that are outstanding. And I think 90% of them would say the same thing, that you've got to be part of that landscape. You know, uh, yeah, that's, that's, I think that's the clearest way that I can explain it. Another shot, and again, I, this, this is still on the Thermovich uh, website, that I'm, I just find remarkable. Um, this is the one that you call Blue Frost. Um, uh, yes, yes. I just, just, I mean, so many things to talk about from, and, and everybody, this is, Obviously, you know, a, a frosty day, there's a sunrise or sunset in the distance, there's some gentle sloping hills, there's some evergreens in sort of the mid-distance, but centered, but the mist and, and, and the, the airiness of this is really, really compelling. This is not a shot, uh, Adrenda, you can plan. <laughs> so, you know, you, you talk about scouting locations, you talk about preparation, this, this is one of those magic moments. So... Tell me about this image. Okay, this is something that uh, really, it's one of my favorite images. Um, it is an image that has gone out to clients as well in various formats. To understand this image, I have to describe the place. Okay. Um, in, in this part of Italy where I live, um, which is uh, in, in Italian, the area that I live in is called Alto Piano. Di Asiago, which means the high plateau of Asiago, which is a, almost like a, a table mountain plateau before you get to the great Dolomite peaks. Okay. And on this, on this uh, high plateau, there's an area that is called Marchesina, which is a giant alpine meadow. And this meadow, every year for about 100 days of the year, plays host to dairy farmers and their cattle. Now, my part of Italy where I live in is world famous for cheese. And in fact, I'm sure in the States, I know for a fact, because there's lots of Italian-American Italian friends of mine that live in the States, they purchase the cheese that is called Asiago cheese. It's available in the States. And it's manufactured in this area, in, in this area of Italy. Now, this giant meadow has these stone buildings that are these stone cabins that are inhabited for 100 days a year by dairy farmers and their families. And the cattle come up from the bottom of the mountains where it's much warmer and they come up to this meadow because the grass is, is sweet and rich and whatever goes with dairy farming. However, this area is also one of the coldest areas in the whole of Italy. It goes down to, on the very coldest days, goes down to about minus 27, minus 30 degrees centigrade, which I'm not sure what it is in, in Fahrenheit, but it's, it's, it's very cold. 
And it's also been called the Finland, the Finland, the country Finland of Europe, of Italy, because of its uh, huge expanses of um, pine tree forests. And in this particular area, every morning throughout the year, there's a huge thermal inversion, which causes that mist. Okay, which I discovered on my very first trip to this area by the, the, the fellow uh, photographer showed me, and I fell in love with that area. And to get that photograph, I normally leave home at about 4.30, 5.30 in the morning, do about half an hour's drive, and go to this huge alpine meadow, and that's the conditions that you get very often. And because I know the area very well, and now I've got to know the, the families that are the dairy farmers that are, you know, permanent for three months of the year. I go there often to photograph them, and I've actually got a good project on for this year with them, which is going to change slightly the direction of uh, my photography, you know, for this project that I'm working on. But that photograph, well, I had hit minus 12 degrees centigrade. And the sun was just coming up and there were this, these bands of mist almost floating. It's the, they were playing music. It, it was an incredible morning, freezing as anything. I mean, it was absolutely a temperature that I hadn't experienced in a long time. But the effect was, it was magical, absolutely it's, magical. It, it is a magical image. Yes, it is. And I love the way that the, the mist appear, you know, almost looks like it's, it's water rolling over some of these hills. There, there's a real fluid motion to, to the landscape in front. Now, Adriana, this image, however, is both like and completely unlike some of the images you've taken around the Venetian Lagoon, uh, some of the, you know, the, the farmhouses there. So t t tell me what attracts you to that more, oh, what's the word I'm looking for, um, to, to the abandoned houses at Golden Hour sitting in a field. Okay, um, this is um, in this part of Italy, as in the rest of Italy, but, you know, I'm trying to get to know areas in, in the region that I live in, which is the, the province of Venice. You know, like in the States, you've got your different states. In Italy, we've also got our different states, and this is the state of Venice, uh, which in Italian is called Veneto. And obviously, this, the historical city of Venice is so close to home. And the, and the, the center, the historic center of Venice, I know very well, and I'm lucky enough to be able to go there uh, very often. But the surrounding lagoon of Venice, the, the, the wilder parts of uh, the islands of Venice, because Venice is made up, uh, made up of a lot of little islands, which people that have been to Italy and know Venice will know, you know, there's the famous island of Murano, which is where the glass blowing takes place. And then there's the, uh, the next island, which is Burano, where they make lace and they're all the colored houses. You know, anyone that's been to this area of Italy has obviously visited um, these famous places. But beyond that, we've got the wild lagoon, which is marshland. And on these reclaimed pieces of the lagoon, there are these abandoned farmhouses, which are speak of des desolation. And it's something that I've grown to, to love, that atmosphere of desolation. And I don't know 
And it's such a difficult thing to say, Scott, because, you know, we've been through the worst pandemic that I can remember, you know, my age group and, and, and you know, we didn't go, I didn't go to the war, so I, I don't know anything about the war, but um, this pandemic, I think, hit home for me because we went into such a lockdown in Italy that we couldn't even leave our, our, our gardens. And it, it puts a damper on things. I don't know if people understand what I'm trying to say, but you have to think about things. And, it, and I thought about desolation plenty of times because I couldn't just jump in the car and go out and photograph because I wasn't allowed to. And when I saw these abandoned farmhouses, I, I thought, where are these people today? Why, did, why is there the sense of abandonment? And something spoke to me. And I'm actually working on a series of photographs now that I'm trying to do some research of where there are more of these abandoned farmhouses in the marshlands of, of the Laguna Venice, which is not very, very documented. I mean, everyone documents the beauty of Venice and the gondolas and everything that comes with, with decadent Venice, let's put it that way. <laughs> but on the outskirts of Venice, there are these beautiful farmlands that have these homes that people can't afford to keep them anymore or they've gone to look for work elsewhere. I'm talking about years ago. I'm not talking about present times. And they're just so part of the history of this area. And part of my, my quest is to discover for myself also a little bit more about where I live. And this is one of the, the themes that I'm working on at, at the moment. So, you know, I'm doing a bit of research. I've just touched on this, though. There's a lot more to discover and a lot more to see. But it suits my type of landscape photography because sometimes there isn't mist. Sometimes in the areas of Lagoon, you have days and days and days of mist. And that's what I'm hoping now in the future, in my future shots of that type of, 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 of architecture, to be able to photograph them not only in sunrise and sunset, which obviously is beautiful, but also in this sort of ghostly atmosphere. I think it's part of what we've gone through has influenced me a little bit to look at that type of situation. The sadness of things, I think, is influencing my work at the moment. To put it in, you know, to put it briefly, the sadness of what's happening, the sadness in the world and not only with the pandemic, with everything that's just happening all over the place. I think it's reflecting more and more on the way I'm thinking and what I want to photograph. You know, lo looking at your work, Adriana, I would not use the word sadness. And so, if this is a new, if this is a new theme coming up, you know, count me in. I, I, I'm going to be really interested in in this th this project. And everybody, if you go to the uh, Frames Facebook page and, and you look up uh, Adriana, there, these images of the abandoned homes around Venice are the are what you're going to see relatively quickly, uh, depending on when you get a chance to go look. So you're working on this project. A minute ago, you mentioned you're working on a new project up in the hills too. What, what's, yes. tell, tell me what you're working on up there. Okay. In Italy and in, in a lot of the Northern European countries, we have a tradition that is equivalent to your tradition in the States, the cattle drives. 
you know, where ranchers drive their cattle. Okay. In Italy, um, you have this movement of cattle and um, from cold mountain areas, the, the high alpine pastures, that they come up from the, from the warmer territories up to the mountains and they graze on, on, on the new pastures, etc. And then obviously the byproduct is cheese. Um, it's the same in Germany, in Austria, in Switzerland, etc. And then at the end of the summer period, towards autumn, the middle of autumn, the cattle leave to go down back to warmer lands, back to farmland, which is obviously a warmer climate. And this this um, is a is a very long-standing ancient tradition here in Italy, and it's called the transhumans. Which in Italian is 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 pronounced transumanza, and because growing up in Tanzania on a farm, my father also had cattle in that. I've always loved cows. I love cows. I I just love them. They're such gentle creatures. And moving to Italy and discovering this beautiful area where you have this cattle drive, this annual cattle drive, I've got to know very well the shepherds and their families. And I've had um, a lot of contact with them and in, in the landscape section of my work where they have seen me photograph their cabins, their cattle, the cheese-making process, etc. And they've, they've become my clients. And, and they've, they say, oh, well, you know, we want to purchase a set of your work, etc. So becoming not only clients, but a lot of them have become my friends. And, and I thought about it, how can I um, give value to what these people do? Um, because it's a hard life, Scott. It's not, it's, it's not everybody um, is born a farmer, and not everybody can be a, cattle, a dairy farmer. It's, it's long hours, it's dealing with animals, it's dealing with whatever that type of world is in their world. And, 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 and in the States as well, I'm sure... You know, farmers don't have it easy. All over the world, farmers don't have it easy. And they're such strong people and they're such proud people. And I thought, how can I give value to their life? And so, you know, I go there often and they all invite me in for an espresso coffee and they see me walking in the fields at the crack of dawn in the middle of the mist and they're calling the cattle to be milked and, and and they, they they shout, oh come, five minutes I'll expect you for a coffee. <laughs> so there are about six families, permanent families that come up, as I said before, for three hours, three months of the year. And I thought, let me pay homage to them. They do such a hard a hard job, thankless job. And so what I got together with them during the summer months, uh, during August, and asked them if they were prepared to let me photograph them doing their work with their animals, and each of them have their favorite cow or their favorite bull, whatever it is, and do a series of photographs of their work, which I'm going to do in black and white, and portraits of them, and then insert the landscape photography that I do in this work and perhaps publish a book, and I definitely will have an exhibition dedicated to them. 
because they're, they're genuine people, Scott. They're genuine, hardworking people, and somebody needs to show the world what, what they do. But not the world, because it's a small corner of a team. Just to show my area what these people do, show Italy what these people do, and eventually the rest of the world. And that's a, a project that I'm, I'm going to try and do it in one year. Because in three months, I can do six families in three months. And then see if I've got a good body of work, if I, if I can maybe publish a book and pay homage to these people. You know, that's, that's what I want to do. As I said to you before, the pandemic and, um, has made me think a lot. And uh, I want to do this. I want to go that route. Not only do, wow, the Donovites or Venice, you know, the beauty. Mm-hmm. But also people that need to be, to show people what's out there in the world as best as I can. I don't count me in as a fan. I, I, I think your work, the, the, the Dolomites, the, the Venice stuff, everything that I've seen so far um, is is magnificent. And these two new projects that you've got, I'm going to be watching for. Thank you very much. This has been extraordinary. I, I admire everything that you've been doing. Thank you, Scott. I just want to just end off with something if we've got a few minutes. As I said to you before, I do have a group of photographers that... You know, I'm sort of like the chief of the group, you know, to put it like that. And um, I've tried to get the guys to slow down. And and, and this is a, um, an attitude that I've adopted now. But it's been developing. I think I, I don't like to blame everything on the pandemic, but I think it's been part of this is to go slow. And I, I use the term slow photography. You have the terms like slow food and that or slow travel, uh, you know, there's plenty of terminology like that. But slow photography, and that's what I'm practicing. There's no more rushing. I'm rushing to get the iconic shot. Yes, I'm lucky. I live in the Dolomite. I live near the Dolomite. I live a starting throw from, from Venice. But now it's a it's a process. It's a little bit different. It's a more important process. And then when I'm on location, it's... Slow photography. Take your time. You know, don't rush and throw the camera on the tripod and snap away. You need to get, like I said to you before with that forest photo, get into the scene. You must feel part of the scene. And that's what I'm teaching to my students and speaking to people that speak to me about photography. Is It needs to be a slow process now. It needs to be de-stressing. I, I agree completely. Um, patience, experience, knowledge, research. The, these are all the friends of photographers. You know, it's not just run and gun. It, it's good old fashioned, do your work before you do your work kind of stuff. Yes, I think so. Yes, I agree completely. And I'm glad that that you have that same sentiment. And I think a lot of people, a lot of people have that sentiment and I think another quick point, and this is what I'm absolutely, actually, they call me the hyena. <laughs> the hyena, obviously, but is that we've got to respect the environment. And I'm seeing such a siege of litter and just bad, bad habits that are taking place, especially in, in our mountains, the Dolomites. And, and I think we need to stand back and take a step back and, 
and, and, and be careful what we do. You know, don't leave litter around. If you if you sleep in a tent, clean up after you. Don't shout in the mountains. Talk softly. It's all that type of thing. And I think we need to slow down in this world. Um, in other worlds as well, but in the photographic world. I, I get so angry when I see this an invasion of iconic places and just the way these places are suffering. I mean, I read a lot of articles on the on the forests in the States, the Rocky Mountains, all the areas, the iconic areas that you have in the States as well. And I think a lot of people, a lot of photographers need to take that into consideration that we've got to, we've got to be careful where we put our feet. We've got to respect the environment. And that's, I'm adamant about that, you know, so. That, that, that is a wise point to put out there. Thank you, ma'am. Th- this has been fantastic. Thank you for having me and also for the, the great, great work that uh, you guys are doing and obviously Thomas, the magnificent work that he's done and uh, to everybody that participates also within Frames and the Frames family. There's such talent out there. Um, I know I'm a small little one, but in my genre, but uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful work and I just want to compliment everybody in this huge family because it's become huge now. It, it has indeed. It's, yes, it has. Great stuff. Great stuff. And I'm happy to be part of it. Well, thank you. This has been great. Thanks a lot, ma'am. I'll talk to you soon. Pleasure. Bye. Frames. Because excellent photography belongs on paper. Visit us at www.readframes.com.